It's time now for Super Psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. Good evening and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. This evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpel.com. Today is Sunday, May the 8th, 2022. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, stepmoms, godmoms, foster moms, grandmoms, aunts, caregivers, nurturers of the earth, humanity, and all who take care of the creatures on the earth. Okay, happy Mother's Day. And I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live from steamy hot Austin, Texas. <laughs> and Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this program, is here with us to make the show run smoothly as usual. And today for our Mother's Day show, we'll be joined by clinical psychologist, professor at the University of Wisconsin, and a nationally and internationally recognized scholar on children with incarcerated parents, Dr. Julie Pellman. And she'll be here to discuss children of incarcerated mothers and the grandparents who take over to care for, for the children um, to take the place of mom. And then later in the show, we'll be joined by Jennifer Pruick in New York. She is a master's student at Columbia University, and she volunteers with a nonprofit group in the Bronx, the Asia Foundation, sending medical supplies to countries in crisis, and they're currently focused on sending supplies to Ukraine. And Jen will join us to let us know how we can help in Ukraine and the benefits of volunteering. And the twins, Minerva and Ruben, are back to take us to another magical Mexico destination. And as usual, after the show, you can hear this program again by going to my website, and the link to the podcast will be posted later tonight, along with any website links given by my guests on the program. And you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends by going directly to blog talk radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years. And you can also listen on Apple Podcasts after the program. And also, you can call in if you have any questions. You can call to ask your questions to 855-345-4720. Or you can email during the program to drmara, D-R-M-A-R-A, at drmaracarpel.com. And... This show is produced by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psych Productions, and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. Wondering what to do after 50? How about having a mighty good time? It's free to search, free to post, and much more. Whether it's in person or virtual, anything can be found to fill your days with connecting with others. So be more active, start connecting with other people, and go to amightygoodtime.com. That's amightygoodtime.com. All right, we're going to take a brief break. Um, It's going to be very brief, so um, don't go anywhere because we'll be right back, and we'll be joined right here by Dr. Julie Pillman. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed for services or supplies you never receive. There are three easy things you can do to fight fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy, protect your personal information, and be on the lookout for suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or your local SHIP counselor at the Area Agency on Aging at 1-800-252-9240. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com.
And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com. And now joining us on the phone from the University of Wisconsin is professor and clinical psychologist and researcher, Dr. Julie Pellman, and she's here to discuss children of incarcerated mothers and the grandparents who take over for mom. Welcome, Julie. Hi, Dr. Mara. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Happy Mother's Day, and thanks for taking some time out to join us to talk about this really important topic. Yeah. I just want to let you know before we go further, and also for our listeners, there's a slight delay, like maybe like a half a second, that if we're not aware of it, can sort of trip us up. (laughs) So... um, uh, before we go into this, dive into this topic, um, maybe you can give us just a little bit about your background. Sure. As you mentioned, I'm a clinical psychologist and I have a specialty in child and family psychology, but I work in an interdisciplinary department called Human Development and Family Studies. So after I got my PhD from Syracuse University, I worked as a clinician for a while, and that's when I first heard about young kids who were experiencing the incarceration of their mom, and then when I became a professor, I decided to study that topic. Okay. All right. So, you know, in looking through uh, your blogs and, you know, it looks like the research articles you've posted, you've done a lot of research in this topic uh, since you started looking at it. And um, yeah, yeah. can you, yeah, um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, let's start with just how prevalent it is that mothers are being incarcerated. So it's increased dramatically over the past couple of decades. And so now there are actually millions of kids who experience the incarceration of their moms. So on any given day, there's about, oh, a little bit more than 100,000 women in state or federal prison, and most of them are moms. And there's about 100,000 women in local jails and about 80% are moms, but that doesn't tell the whole story. Actually, across a year's time, there are more than 2 million women admitted to jails across the country, and 80% of them are moms. So that's really millions of kids each year who are affected by having an incarcerated mom. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say this is because mothers are committing more crimes, or is there something else going on here? Well, the pattern hasn't really just been a result of crime. It's been a result of policy changes that have occurred in the U.S. across the past couple of decades. And many moms are incarcerated because they have committed a drug-related crime. And so they're Mm -hmm. starting in like the 1980s and, you know, even to fairly recently, there's just been a lot of changes in policy that have created mass incarceration throughout the country. And the rate of men's incarceration had increased dramatically as well, but that was only until about 2013 when it really leveled off, whereas the rate of women's incarceration just continued to skyrocket. Wow. Why is that? Why are women being incarcerated at a greater rate than men? Well, historically, they've been incarcerated at extremely low rate, and so um, it really that rate is partly the fact that it used to be that hardly any women were incarcerated. But now, given that millions of women are incarcerated each year, we know that, you know, it's a variety of factors. It's uh, oftentimes drug-related. Sometimes it's related to domestic violence, where a woman who's experienced domestic violence is finally kind of struck back. Um, And there's other Mm -hmm. uh, crimes that are related to poverty. But Actually, that that figure that's so high based on um, jail incarceration, which is like 60% of jail incarceration actually is 
pre-trial or pre-sentencing. So many women are, you know, sitting in jail when they haven't even been convicted or sentenced. Mm-hmm. So how does this affect their children when their moms go to jail? Kids can be affected in so many different ways. Typically, before the moms are incarcerated, they're the primary caregivers of the kids. And when they leave, kids often have to change where they live. So when moms go to jail or prison, it's typically a grandparent who cares for the child rather than the child's dad. Um, And also um, kids sometimes end up in the foster care system. Now, this can be really hard for them because they may have to go to a different school. They're in a different neighborhood. Sometimes they're even separated from their siblings. And this can create a lot of distress. Uh, In some cases, too, we know that kids have witnessed their mom's arrest and that, you know, I can talk about that a little bit more later, but Mm -hmm. that can be traumatic as well. Um, But oftentimes kids have kind of the short-term reactions, meaning they're like kind of in shock over the separation. They miss their moms. Um, They're having, they often have a hard time in a very, very small minority of cases. Some kids feel relief. You know, if it was a really negative situation for them, sometimes it can actually lead to the mom getting help for pretty severe substance abuse or something like that. But in the majority of cases, kids are distressed. They're sad and um, they miss their moms. And then in the longer term, there can be fallout as well. So kids can sometimes experience um, problems in school. They can experience more behavior problems, both the externalizing problems like acting out and the internalizing problems like anxiety, depression, withdrawal. And that can continue um, on into adolescence and even young adulthood. Um, And also the kids are more likely to have health problems and they're more likely to experience other adversity as well. Um, Sometimes it might be because of the mom's incarceration, but other times it could be because of other factors and that the kids are just more often exposed to them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of the grandparents taking over, um, is that a positive thing, do you think? The, the, have you seen that being a positive, that the, when the grandparents take care of the children at that point? All in, yeah, all in all, it seems like when grandparents step in to take care of the kids, it can be really positive for the kids. The kids are typically in a safe setting. They're loved. It's usually they know their grandparents. Sometimes the grandparent has taken care of them before. So it can be really positive. And, and studies that focus on the, the what people call grand families, you know, where the grandparent is the head of the household for their and care for their grandkids, they develop a really strong bond um, between the child and the grandparent. Now, it can sometimes be really challenging for the grandparents, though, because um, sometimes grandparents aren't planning on this in their role. They might be, like, looking forward to, you know, having an empty nest or retirement or um, other kinds of things. And when they start caring for a grandparent, it can be like a real shift in their plans. And it can also be a financial stress as well to start caring for kids. But overall, it seems to be a really positive factor in the life of kids. And many kids right. are really grateful. I, I just received a question from a listener. And the question is, are privatized prisons also a reason for so many more incarcerations? Private prisons represent a real problem in the criminal legal system in our country because they really don't have much of an incentive to decrease recidivism or help people rehabilitate because they're for profit. Um, However, most jails, which are run at the local levels, like by a county sheriff's department or by a city, they're typically not private. And so 
those incarcerations have to do with other issues. One of the biggest problems is that right now in the United States criminal legal system, about 95% of criminal legal cases are decided by plea bargain. So sometimes people even like sit, you know, they um, admit that they're guilty for something that they might not do just to get a lower sentence. And so only about 5% of cases go to trial. And so prosecutors end up having a lot of power in these cases. And so that actually is even more of an issue, although privatized prisons can be a really big problem for other reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned before about the stress of witnessing a, a parent uh, or particularly a mother being arrested. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. Um, so there are protocols that exist that can help law enforcement agencies conduct arrests in a way that are sensitive to whether or not children are present. So the, a person who's trained in those kind of protocols would ask or try to inquire or observe if a child was present, and then they would try to conduct the arrest out of eye or earshot of the child, and they would try to make sure that the child was cared for following the arrest, and they would communicate directly with the child. However, the majority of law enforcement agencies in the U.S. don't use those kind of child-sensitive protocols. And so what we see often is that uh, when a a parent is incarcerated, maybe anywhere between 20 to 50% of the kids have witnessed that parent being arrested. And we know that many of the kids, you know, remember that vividly for years and show symptoms of trauma and very Mm -hmm. high stress levels. And this can be really hard for kids because that might be the last time they've seen their mom or their dad in a long time. And that's kind of what they remember. They don't get to say goodbye to them. Or the arrest occurs while they're at school and they come home to an empty house and no one inquired, Mm -hmm. you know, do you have a child? And so they didn't, you know, make sure that that child was cared for. And so it is a real problem Uh, for kids who have um, parents who end up interfacing with the criminal legal system. Yeah. Wow. I can't even imagine that, that they don't even take into account that a child might be coming home from school to an empty house. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to kids who, yeah, kids who say like, you know, a teenager who said that they came home and no one was there and that they just happened to hear on um, the news that their mom had been uh, arrested and was at the jail and they didn't know any other way. They just were like, where's mom? And, and this unfortunately happens all too frequently. Wow. So, so what are some of the implications going forward? I mean, how can we prevent the, this kind of lifelong pain that you're describing in children? Um, from happening how can how can they be more resilient to the stress or how can we even lower the the rate of of mothers being incarcerated in the first place right so there are a number of different things so there are some efforts at decarceration um when the pandemic first struck actually many correction facilities out of fears related to covid were trying to decarcerate so picking people who were close to finishing their sentence or um, people who had a, you know, kind of low-level nonviolent crime, um, they were releasing them early. And so that's the kind of decarceration that could be helpful also in the longer term. Shortening sentences, um, that could be uh, another option. And then a few other things that, you know, when a mom is incarcerated, there can be other things done that can help kids cope. And one is facilitating positive contact between kids and their incarcerated moms or dads. Um, And that can be done through facilitating what we call child-friendly visits. And that is when a kid can go to a corrections facility and see their parent in person and hug them and do some activities together, 
eat a meal or snacks together and just really spend some quality time. Um, another way is to have a remote video visit. So that means a kid could stay at home or in a comfortable place and have like what looks to them like a FaceTime or Skype or Zoom uh, communication with their mom or their mm-hmm. dad. And that can be really positive for kids. And they identify it kind of like, oh, I got to video chat with my parent. And they don't necessarily um, feel that stress that they might if they walked into a jail or prison. Another mm-hmm. thing that can be done is to um, really support caregivers in the community so that the, they can adequately care for the kids. Um, so programs that you know provide mentoring to the kids, that provide connections to financial assistance, that um, support groups for grandparents raising grandchildren and, and other caregivers can be really important. And then implementing the kind of um, child safe protocols that I mentioned earlier that can really protect kids from some of the trauma of witnessing their parents' arrest. And then there are other interventions as well. For example, um, back in uh, 2013, Sesame Street came out with some materials for young kids whose parents are incarcerated, and I served as an advisor for them, and I also helped evaluate the materials. And that can be helpful for young kids. Um, the materials are geared for kids age three to eight, but but also older kids can watch them as well, and they're they're really moving and help give kids the message that they're not alone. It's not their fault. It's okay to have big feelings, and you. Usually kids have adults in their life who love them and care for them, even if a parent is away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that Sesame workshop. I saw that you had written a blog about it and wondered if you were one of the people involved, that it was at University of Wisconsin. Yeah, um, there were a, a group of advisors who worked with Sesame Street to develop the materials, and I was the researcher, um, but there were other individuals as well, people who are advocates in the community or worked with nonprofits who, um, working with incarcerated individuals or within the prison systems. And um, those materials have been accessed so many millions of times, and in the research that we did to evaluate them, we found that they were really helpful in a couple of different ways. One, helping caregivers, um, including grandparents, know how to talk to kids about the parents' incarceration. And then also, um, they helped kids feel more positively about their families um, when kids were coming into a corrections facility to visit their parents. Is that still available? Is that program still available? Mm-hmm. Um, they're available if you Google or search for Sesame Street Incarceration, you'll get, it's called um, Communities, and there's a whole website, and then it's also freely available on the App Store, um, and there it's multimedia materials, including videos, a caregiver guide, a storybook for kids, and a number of different activities. And there's a beautiful song called You Are Not Alone. Uh, It was written by Stephen Sondheim and performed by the Muppets. And it's really Mm -hmm. um, something that in our evaluation we noted that children like to listen to kind of over and over because it gives such positive messages about how um, kids aren't alone and that they have people around him who care about them and love them. Right. So, uh, you know, I just have a question about that. Are are there agencies that are kind of passing that around to parents and caregivers, or do people just kind of have to find out about it on their own? Well, there were 10 states where Sesame Workshop did deep dissemination, and so they did have um, lots of different um, agencies, nonprofit groups, correction systems um, passing out those materials. Um, And back then they were also available in physical form. So there were these kits that included like a DVD and some books. Um, Now the physical materials aren't available, but they're available online. And I've worked with a number of different systems where, for example, I even saw a case in which a court commissioner put in the court order 
that they get a hold of those materials and read okay. them and um and that you know I've seen um prisons have them in the visiting room and giving you know we're giving them out to kids and families in the visiting room and then many um families access them online because they're available in both English and Spanish and so it can be really you know helpful and reach a lot of families that way Mhm mhm Okay do do kids typically get counseling when you know does that get court ordered when the when the mom or or the or the dad are incarcerated or is that just something that again the family has to go look for It happens sometimes I wouldn't say it's the norm if a kid is really struggling or there's a lot of conflict in the family, then there might be some kind of court-ordered counseling. In the in most cases, though, actually, kids never really come to the attention of a judge or court commissioner. They have an informal placement during the mom's incarceration, um, and sometimes that placement might shift even, and they don't really come to anyone's attention. Most school mm-hmm. systems don't don't inquire. If a child has an incarcerated parent, um, most correction systems don't even inquire if the people in their custody are parents. And then certainly, you know, at most, um, you know, in most plea bargain deals or or criminal trials, they don't really consider the parental status. That is changing in some places. So, for example, in Rhode Island, there's some legislation being considered right now um, to consider, you know, wh- whether the person um, who's being sentenced is a parent or not, and that might, um, you know, help determine where they're placed or how long they're placed or whether they um, have an ankle bracelet or an alternative to incarceration rather than a, an incarceration. And um, some people recommend having, like, a family statement. So it's not just about you know, reducing time for someone who's a parent so they can be with their kids. It's about family responsibility. Parents have a responsibility for the welfare of their children, and they can't just ignore that even if they're um, on the verge of being incarcerated. So um, it is kind of an unusual system in the United States because that's partly why children with incarcerated parents were invisible for so long is that you know, nobody was really keeping track of this, and and it was, you know, the problem grew and grew until finally it was this huge public health problem. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, I. It, it seems like it would be a a, a really significant pro- public health problem. Um, you know, that's that's kind of crazy to just not even pay attention to the fact that this mother has children at home. Um, yeah, and um, nowadays it's the one positive thing is that um, we know that when um, a parent is incarcerated, if they have more contact with their children during the incarceration, they're less likely to recidivate later. And so correction systems have started thinking about the value of family contact. Also, when people are released, they most often rely on their family for support and and so the correction systems that have started thinking about, oh, how can we facilitate positive family relationships? And so more and more prisons in the United States are likely to offer parenting classes and parenting interventions um, to incarcerated parents, but those aren't as available in local jails where people, you know, stay shorter periods of time and they often have less less programs available. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I saw that you wrote a book, or you edited a book, Children of Incarcerated Mothers. Um, I'm guessing there's a lot more about this issue than than what we touched on on the show. Yeah, yeah, um, that was a recent monograph, and um, so I edited it, and there were quite a few uh, contributors who talked, to, you know, they presented their research on different things, including um, you know, there are, a, you know, maybe a little, about a dozen or a little less than a dozen prison um, nurseries or residential prison programs in the United States where 
um, if a woman is pregnant when she goes to prison, she can have her baby stay with her for, you know, sometimes up to a year or so. Um, so that that was one of the chapters. And then there were a few chapters on, you know, um, women um, who are on correctional supervision because most people involved with corrections in the United States are on probation or parole. They're not even incarcerated. And there's so many millions, and we don't even know very much about it, how it affects kids. <coughs> Excuse me. And then an, another one of the studies in that monograph, Sorry, it's, it's bad okay. to be coughing on the radio. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. It's live but, radio. Um, so. Yeah, so well. <laughs> um, another chapter in the monograph um, is a like a follow-up study of kids who have incarcerated mothers, and it's a kind of in-depth qualitative look. Um, at how the kids did once they were young adults and what, you know, that incarceration meant to them and how they coped with a lot of the stressors and how challenging it was to, you know, kind of be resilient and overcome that. But some of them did, and um, it's really kind of profound when when they can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, now you have a blog. Um, well, you've written about many of the topics related to children and incarcerated parents. Um, and you also go around the country and speak about it. Can you can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. I started the blog because I started getting so many calls and emails from people who um, are practitioners, policymakers, attorneys, know people who needed to know more information about this and sometimes the scientific literature is just not very accessible and so most of my publications are in peer-reviewed journals and so I decided to try to translate that into plain language so people could really just use the information and then when I can I make the publications available for free Um, and then I give talks um, different places around the country and different places around the world, uh, mostly about uh, kids with incarcerated parents or, you know, incarcerated parents or grandparents raising grandchildren, just because it's an issue in so many countries around the world. And it's it's really become um, kind of a human rights issue in addition to public health issue, uh, because in many places, people don't really know what to do to help the kids. And... Um, many of the kids are still kind of invisible. Mm-hmm. So you actually go to other countries to talk about this as well as right here in the United States. Right, and I collaborate with people in other countries. And uh, lately I've been doing more uh, Zoom connections across the country or across the sure. world. Um, <laughs> so actually uh-huh. that's one of the things that the pandemic has done for uh, people is to connect them all across the world. So, um, mm-hmm. so if if people listening are interested in in reading your blog, um, you know how can they do that? And if they're interested in getting in touch with you to have you speak to their group, how can they do that? Well, my blog is it's just www.kidswithincarceratedparents.com and also if you just search my name you'll get it or you could email me um, it's just julie.palman at gmail.com and I'd be happy to respond I think that it's such an important issue and so many people I talk to and I just know um, have a Experience this or know someone who has and so I just think it's a good uh, thing to know that there are resources so families don't have to feel alone mm-hmm mm-hmm absolutely um, I you know I people don't really think about that a lot you know when they when they talk about the incar- you know mass incarceration and the issues that it brings up I don't hear too many people talking about the children that are that it affects 
and and it right. obviously has a really dramatic effect on children, on so many children. Um, exactly. So I'm going to post the link to your uh, blog website on my on my uh, website about this show later tonight, and also your email address so that people can get in touch with you. And um, on your blog website, does it have any information about you, or is there a good place for people to learn about you? Um, well, they could go to my blog, and there's a section that says about you, or they could just Google my name, and I have a website at the University of Wisconsin as well, and that has links to some of my publications and the courses I teach and some of the interventions I've done. Okay. All right. So I'll find that and I'll also post that on online. So if people are interested in having you speak, they can kind of get a little bit more about your background. And so I'll be posting that later tonight. Um, Great. Thank you so much, Julie, for, for joining us um, today. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a really big topic. So, I would really love to have you come back at another point to talk about other aspects of the of this issue with parents being incarcerated. Oh, I would be happy to, and thank you so much for having me. And happy Mother's Day to anyone out there who, you know, experienced anything related to incarceration and know there is hope. Yeah, that's a good. That's good to know there's hope. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, you have a good evening, and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye-bye now. Okay. We're going to take a brief break. Um, Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Dr. Mara's book, The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age, is now available on Kindle and in paperback at Amazon. Don't forget to listen to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years live from Austin, Texas, every Sunday on blogtalkradio.com. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaracarpell.com. All right, and we are back. Um, if you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on Blog Talk Radio and on drmaracarpell.com. And now while we're waiting for Jennifer to join us, I just want to mention that um, I am going to continue the discussion that I started a couple of weeks ago, and I uh, just touched on it last week. Um, I will be continuing that next week, and that is on late life depression, how to recognize it, and um, how to um, how to treat it. Um, there are different, you know, with late life depression, it shows up dip- differently very often, and it's often missed. And um, the National Institute of Health has called it a um, a health crisis because of the effects of um, of depression on the elderly. Um, just as many adults are depressed as older adults, however, the effects on the elderly are dramatically different, so they're more significant. So that's why it's considered a, a health crisis. And over the past two years, since we've been in a pandemic, with social isolation being even greater for older adults because of the danger of catching COVID as an older adult, the depression rate has gone up significantly. And with the recent war in Ukraine, um, this has also affected um, many older adults, especially older adults who come from that part of the world. So we're going to be talking about that next week. Um, we're still waiting for Jennifer to join us from New York. So um, let me see if I can bring up a few statistics about late-life depression. We can talk about that while waiting for Jennifer. Hold on just a moment. So, okay, now we're going to talk about it next week because now Jennifer is on the line. So we're going to go to Jennifer 
in New York to talk about volunteering. Welcome, Jen. Hi, Mara. How are you? I'm wonderful. Happy Mother's Day, and thank you for joining us today. Um, I just want to let you know there's a slight delay when we talk like this, like maybe half a second, just enough to throw us off if we don't know it's there. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. (laughs) All right. So, so Jennifer, um, maybe you can give, before we jump into the volunteering that you're doing, maybe you can give us just like a a brief uh, little summary of your background. Yeah, well, I'm a student at Columbia University. I'm currently in a graduate program for occupational therapy. And mm-hmm. on, in the meantime, I work at the College of Mount St. Vincent, so I'm also a supervisor for residential students who have disabilities, and I supervise the RCs that are, like, residential coaches for those students. And then... On the side, I do a lot of my volunteer work with the Afia Foundation. Okay. So what is the Afia Foundation? Yeah, uh, the Afia Foundation is a nonprofit organization that was founded by a registered occupational therapist and uh, master's in public health, um, Danielle Buton. She founded the foundation uh, when she actually took a trip to Africa and went to, uh, I forgot what village she specifically went to. I don't know why it's blanking my mind, but um, she was helping uh, one of London's top physicians with um, children who needed help. However, the people that she was helping didn't have medical supplies or PPE equipment. And the physician told um, Danielle, you know, she was crying and she was telling her, I have the top, I have one of the most top degrees in London, but I can't help these people because there's no supplies. And that really mm-hmm. struck Danielle. So she came back to, to the United States and she thought, oh my goodness, I can't sit here knowing that there are people out there who don't have the resources that they need. However, because she spent a lot of her um her fieldwork experience with um, in hospitals, she knew that they were throwing them out even if they were unused. So she knew that those supplies could be given to countries in need. So she, you know, she called so many hospitals. She's saying, hey, I know you throw out these supplies. Is there by any chance that I can have them? And most of them said, yeah sure, we'll just deliver it to wherever you want us to deliver. And then next thing you know, she has like two large tanks in front of her house full of medical supplies and PPE equipment. But, you know, the police came around. They said, yeah, you can't have this here. And she said, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm only an occupational therapist. I've also never owned a business. I've never done a nonprofit. I've never done any of these things. And she said, you know what, let me start something. And that's when she created the Afia Foundation. And now she has seven warehouses full of thousands of medical supplies and PPE equipment that we run through and we go through this whole process every day. So it's nonstop work, but we ship them um, to countries in need. And unfortunately, during this time with the war in Ukraine, um, that's where we were called to do most of our work. Mhm, mhm. So mainly, what you're doing is what you're doing is getting together medical supplies and shipping it to Ukraine. Is that yes? Okay, all right. Um, and do you have a lot of volunteers to help you? Yeah. Yes. Yes, we do. Um, okay. Um, prior to the to the pandemic, we normally had like 300 volunteers on a day-to-day basis, but because of the pandemic, we had to reduce that number to, like, maximum 30 to 50. But during Mm -hmm. the pandemic, it was, like, 15 volunteers, and that just wasn't enough um, to really get supplies going. Right, right. Yeah. So um, so let's, let's just talk about volunteering in general. 
I mean, you know, I talk a lot about it on this program. I, you know, I talk about how when people are feeling hopeless and helpless, one of the ways to get out of that is to volunteer. And there are a lot of health benefits to doing that for for yourself. What what have you found with, you know, when I mean, you're busy, you're in, you're going to Columbia and you're work you're running, you know, these residential hall programs at at the college um and yet you also are doing the volunteering what benefit do you find that that is there for you when you do that yeah yeah <laughs> you know some people are like they're always telling me you're stretched thin with your time how is it that you're able to do what you do and i said you know when i go to afia or in any organization that i can put my hands on it's just it's really that community that you build with others who are bound to follow that same mission. So if we all have the same goal in mind where we're there because we have the same purpose and the same meaning, it's that bond that we build. So we're, we're all not just going there just to go. We're also going there to see each other, to see the work get done, but also to just, you know, build community. And I feel like especially during times, especially during the, the pandemic, we lost a lot of that social community gathering. So that was very hard on a lot of people and very hard on me because I was very used to volunteering in different organizations prior to the Afia Foundation. So going back and then, you know, being able to put my hands in, it's just like that sense of community where it's like, wow, like I feel like, you know, I'm a part of something and that matters. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And I think that's so important because, you know, I, I really think that having a sense of meaning is, and purpose is the, the one thing running through, every, you know, that need for that is the one thing that runs through every age group, socioeconomic status, and, you know, where we are in life that, that helps to prevent depression if we have that sense of meaning. Um, do you find that also it helps you, you know, I know people feel like, wow, there's, you know, there's, there's war in Ukraine and there's war all over the world. Um, people suffering right here in the United States and, pe- you know, a lot of people say, well, I just give up. The, you know, what I do isn't going to make much of a difference. It's just a drop in the bucket. Do you find that mm-hmm. you do start to feel like you are making a difference? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think I understand those people very well where they're like, well, it's not going to make a difference, but it does because I know that the supplies that I touch and I organize and I make sure they're the right, they're numbered the right way and they're going in the right direction is going to land in someone's hands who needs it at that moment, especially when they feel like Mm -hmm. it's the end of the world or no one's really there for them and that's that's also part of my profession as well where it's like wherever I know if I only have 10 minutes with the client I make the most out of those 10 minutes and I make sure Mm -hmm. that they understand that you know they're getting what they need at that time so it's the same concept plies is going to land somewhere and they really need it and it's not only just medical equipment we're also collecting wheelchairs and um um other um stockings and stuff that people really need and they don't realize it's, you know, it's very debilitative that, you know, they're in need of these resources. So it does make a difference, you know, even if Mm -hmm. it feels like Mm -hmm. it's not a huge impact, right? Because that's the whole concept where it's like, if you go in there with the mindset where you know you're not going to save the world, but you know that one thing is going to make a huge impact in someone's lives, I think that matters more. Yeah. Yeah, I think you said something really important, and that is that it is going, even if it, you know, that one thing is going to, then it might save their life. And even one yeah. life saved or made better is is extremely valuable. Yeah. So, you know, you have to have that mindset of this, you know, one one person at a time is okay. That's okay, because that's what's important. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, 
I know you're, you know, the Asia Foundation is located in the Bronx. Um, are there things that people can do to help you guys or to participate in this effort or other groups that you know of for people who are not there in that in that region? Yeah, I mean, one thing that the Afia Foundation has started is donations, and a lot of like those donations really go into getting more quality supplies out there. And you can find that on their website. Okay. What's their website? The AfiaFoundation.org. Okay. The Afia. Okay. A-F-Y-A Foundation.org. Yes. Okay. Great. Great. I'm going to, I'm going to be posting that on my website posts about this show later tonight. So if there are people listening who want to get involved and make donations, um, they can go there later tonight and that link will be there so they can just click on it. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for for everything that you're doing and all of your hard work. And and thank you for being on this program. And I'd love to, you know, catch up with you again at some point and see how things are going and, you know, and if you've moved on, you know, to another area of the world <laughs> once, <laughs> once this war in Ukraine ends, hopefully one day. <laughs> yes. War is so, everywhere, so we can only hope for the best. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, maybe sometime I'll meet you up there. I go up there pretty often. So. Oh, awesome. That yes. Be, <laughs> yes, that would be lovely. Okay. Well, you have a very good night and uh, um, a good week coming up. And um, we'll speak to you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye now. All right. So before we head off the show, we're actually going to take a little trip to Mexico and we're going to listen to a little music by Art and then speak to the twins in Mexico. Of 2010, the town of Nica had a population of 
for upcoming shows and events. Dr. Mara Carpell, your golden years. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment, Postal Productions, and Psyched Up Productions, and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. Thank you to my guests, Julie Paleman, Jennifer Puak, Minerva and Ruben in Bay of Vendettas, and thank you, Art. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. One sees the way, and one hears the song it brings. And Micah's out to play, and Nathan's here to stay a while. And don't go so far away, he's right behind. Watch him, here he comes. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any of the information given on this show. 